turn to the Word of God as we find it in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. I remind you that Ezekiel was the prophet who ministered to the Jews when they were in the Babylonian exile by the river Kibar in the vicinity of Babylon. He ministered to the exiles in the Babylonian captivity prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and following the destruction of Jerusalem. The first part of the prophecy of Ezekiel is made by Ezekiel while he's in the land of Babylon, but it's prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Read as the prophecy opens that of the 30th year, and I was among the captives by the river Kibar, and in the 30th year is referring to his own age. He's 30 years old when he's called to be a prophet. He's the son of a priest, and he was taken with an early band of captives with Jehoiachin, the boy king who reigned only, only three months and then was taken by Nebuchadnezzar with thousands of others along with Daniel and his three friends about 11 years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. They were taken as hostages. Either you pay tribute, you miserable Jews, or we may just slaughter all these princes and priests, your sons and daughters we have taken with us. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that, but that was the threat. So five years into that first band of captives, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. He is the age of 30. That's six years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now we turn to Ezekiel 37, and this prophecy takes place about a year and a half following the destruction of Jerusalem, when the whole of the nation is there at last in the hundreds of thousands. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Notice that word there, I am Jehovah. That's extremely important, because that's the God of promise and of covenantal mercies, who will be true to his word. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come and come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones were dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. 
Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. And then follows a number of verses in which he prophesies, told to prophesy that northern Israel and Judah, at some point represented by Joseph and by Ephraim, will be, I should say, Ephraim and by Judah, shall come together as one nation. And now go to verse 22. And I will make them one nation, in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king to them all. They shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwellings wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And now notice, and David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd, they shall all also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. They shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So this is a messianic prophecy. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will, be, I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Thus far the reading of the prophetic word, and our text consists of verses 1 through 11 of Ezekiel chapter 37. It is, as I have said, a prophecy that occurs just over a year after the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation by the hundreds of thousands is now in exile, driven from the promised land and in captivity. And they are in despair. In despair, not merely because Jerusalem had been destroyed and utterly demolished, and not simply because the temple had been destroyed and utterly demolished and the Ark of the Covenant taken as well, and not simply because there had been a wholesale slaughter of young and old and little ones had been taken and dashed against the stones and the corpses of their relatives could be found strewn from Jerusalem to Babylon. Not simply that was the reason for their despair, though that entered in as well, but this came, it came down to this. This had occurred to them by the will of God in his wrath, in his displeasure, to drive them out of the land 
and it was what they were worthy of. They deserved no less. And the spiritual amongst them knew it. Destroyed and apparently disinherited. They were in despair. As we read in verse 37, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off in all our parts. To this people, Ezekiel is to come with the word of chapter 37 to keep them from that despair, to give some encouragement, which is why in this section around 37, prior and following, there's reference again and again to God's covenant. And the name Jehovah God is used as the God of the covenant who has made promises and in spite of their unfaithfulness and unworthiness, intends to keep those promises as he says in chapter 36, Verse 32, not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God, be it known unto you, and you be ashamed. I do this for my own name's sake because of who I am. But it has to do with this reference to this keeping of his covenant. In other words, saying that it is my purpose yet to preserve unto myself a people and even to gather Yet from your generations, as we read in the chapter, children and children's children, even to continue this covenant and to gather my people from your generations. And not only that, I will work in such a way as to revive some of those who had been cut off, even from the carnal element of the nation, to be grafted in again. And more than that, if you read the context, I will even gather from the nations, those where you have gone to gather them to myself as well, reference to the Gentiles as well when all is said and done. So it magnifies God's faithfulness in spite of their unfaithfulness. But now, this. This is not simply a passage that magnifies God's faithfulness in spite of his people's unfaithfulness. This is a word also that is to magnify the word and the preaching of the word. And if the word is magnified in the preaching of the word, then what's underscored is your need to attend to the word and my need to attend to the word. He's not simply speaking words to say words. The importance of the preaching and the people who attend to those words. That's what's going on here, you see. This is a passage that magnifies God's great mercy, but this is a passage also that underscores the calling to repentance and the need for repentance, as we will see as we develop the text in its context. The need of repentance, because as we confess, salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's all of grace, but grace alone, beloved, and the rest of grace alone does not dismiss or mute the call to hear and obey or else. Or else what? Jerusalem, beloved, has been destroyed. 
God's displeasure. God's anger. Consequences, and sometimes of a severe sort. That's what. That's also part of the passage and the context. You understand. Are we a people who hear? Or are we like the dry bones? The dead bones. And the word leaves us as we are unmoved. This is a passage that magnifies grace. How does one know one has been graced? Do you listen to the word? How else, beloved, can a person hear the word and then respond properly according to the word unless he has been graced? And into his heart has been breathed the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. Without that evidence, one can only be identified and remain identified with these dead bones. So you have this wonder of God's work in the valley of the dry bones. Why? To speak concerning a people who will at last be able to receive the word and hear the word, and respond properly. And the proper response, beloved, has everything to do with what repentance requires of us, as we shall see. Ezekiel's vision of dry bones, what Ezekiel saw, and what those bones then represent. He saw dry bones, and what do those bones represent? What he was called to do, preach, you say, but preach what? And what came forth? A people, yes, but don't overlook that phrase, an exceeding great army. That's a word chosen purposely. It was with Ezekiel the prophet as it would be with John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos, he was one who received visions. Visions that had to do with history that was to come to pass, and it had a history that had to do ultimately with the church under judgment, and yet judgment unto salvation. It has been some time since Ezekiel has received a vision. This is chapter 37. The last time he received a vision was back in chapter 8. And what you read back in chapter 8 is a vision that runs through chapter 11, an extended vision, and a vision that took place about a month prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Between these two visions, there's all kinds of prophecies because Ezekiel remains between these visions for over a year, and during that year's time, the word of the Lord came unto him saying this, and the word of the Lord came unto him saying that. But here is the first of the visions since we had that vision back in chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. Prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel was by the river Kibar, but he was transported in a virtual reality, as it were, his body remaining by the river, but in his mind he's taken, we read in the sixth year, that is in the sixth year of their, since he's been called to be a prophet, just shortly before the destruction of 
Jerusalem. This is the sixth year of his prophecy, and it's year 11, and the judgment's going to come soon. I sat in my house, and then I was taken. He put forth his hand, took me, lifted me up between the earth, and brought me in visions to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh towards the north. He's at the southern gate, and he's placed there in a virtual reality, and in a virtual reality, transported in his mind, he walks through that gate up the streets of the city and heads for the temple. And the reason the Lord wants to lead him through the streets of the city is to show Ezekiel what's taking place in that city. And he hears things, and he opens doors, if you read his vision, because this is actually happening in time. He's there invisibly, if you will. They don't see him, but he sees them. And he hears the chanting, and he opens doors, and what does he see? People worshiping idols with incense and all of that. And there's pictures on the wall. What sort of pictures do you suppose are on the wall? Pornography, having to do with the idolatry. That's what's on the walls. And so he's taken, you understand, to see what is there. And it's sin after sin after sin until he finally comes to chapters 10 and there's judgment that he sees in a vision way. And then the Spirit lifts lifts him up in chapter 11 to the door of the Lord's house. Now he's at the temple looking eastward from the Lord's house. And he sees this Jehazaniah and this Pelatiah, who are princes of the people. And the Lord says to him, son of man, verse 2, these are the men that devise mischief. That's of course, has to do with all kinds of immoralities and give wicked counsel in this city. Now listen to what they say, these princes. It is not near. What's not near? The judgment that Jeremiah the prophet has been sounding in our ears for some 50 years. He's been preaching 50 years of judgment, and here we still are. There's no judgment. It's not near. We're the people of the Lord, are we not? This, let us build houses to worry about the enemy outside the gate. Let's build houses. We have a future yet. The city is the cauldron. It's the pot. We are the flesh. We're the soup. We're the ones who make the city taste good to the Lord. They have the audacity to say that. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So here's the leaders of the people. And they want to use the name of the Lord while they continue in their idolatries. What's the attraction of idolatries, beloved? Why do the people keep going back to idolatries? Because in idolatries, you can bring a certain sacrifice, a certain gift to this God or that God, and then you're under his protection and care, and then you can go forth and you can live as you please. You can continue to wallow in your immoralities. The gods don't care as long as you bring them your gifts and sacrifices and plead a loyalty to them. Is that Jehovah God? That's not Jehovah God, is it? Just as long as you bring me some offerings and come to church on a regular basis, you can now go forth and live as you want. Enjoy your immoralities. You're under my protection and care. That's the holy Jehovah. Turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? That's Jehovah God. 
And if you don't come with attitude, you can keep your gifts and offerings. They mean nothing to me. Uh, people who better come contrite, as we sung in Psalter number 365. And if you don't come in a contrite heart, your offerings have no meaning to me. Contrite, confessing sin with the resolution to walk in God's ways. That's the difference, you see. And that's not the Jehovah God these princes and the people wanted. But gods that allow us to be under protection and care and then continue in our immorality. And we better give something to Jehovah God, too, because he has proved in the, in, in the past to be somewhat helpful, you know, when we need defense, we, we need him as well. Both and. Jehovah God says, no, not both and. Either or. Choose you this day whom you will serve, O house of Israel. That's behind the, the, the vision we're going to come to see. But that's the princes, you see. And then, that's chapter 11, prophesy to them. And then at the end of chapter 11, this is what we read. Then... Verse 21, as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own head, saith the Lord God. Then did the cherubims lift their wings and the wheels beside them. You know, Ezekiel, wheels within wheels, the chariots, wheels within wheels. These are the same cherubim, four of them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above on a platform, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city, that's Mount Olives, and the glory has departed from the temple. It's Ichabod, beloved. God says, I'm done, I'm gone, and now you are wide open for the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan the general, to destroy your gates and overwhelm the city and demolish it stone by stone and slaughter the inhabitants as well. Ichabod, that's what he sees at the cold close of that vision, you see. And it's just a short time before the destruction of Jerusalem. And you have all kinds of uh, prophecies. And then you read this in chapter 33, verse 21. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity. This is a year then after the destruction of Jerusalem, really. In the tenth month that one that had escaped out of the Jerusalem came unto me saying, the city is smitten. A year after it's destroyed, when finally comes to the remaining captives in, on the river Kibar and says it has been demolished. It does not exist anymore. And the hand of the Lord was upon me. He, he, he lapses into a dumbness of, of shock and grief. And then in the evening, he opened my mouth and I was no more dumb, and then he begins to prophesy again. That's in chapter 33, and these prophecies, you see, lead to what we read finally in chapter 37 with respect to the valley of the dry bones. A word to a people who are at the point of despair. We be cut off, our hope is lost. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he carried me out 
and set me in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, piles and piles of bones, not skeletons laid out nicely in row upon row, piles and piles of bones scattered here, there, and everywhere, and he passes through them. There were very many in that open valley, and they were very dry. They didn't even have marrow in them, if you will. And he says to me, Son of man, can these bones live? These bones representing what and whom? Beloved, understand these bones do not represent the corpses that were strewn from Jerusalem to the river Kibar, nor the skeletons and the corpses of those that were, were yet in the, in the mixed the, the, the stones of the demolished Jerusalem, all that had been slaughtered and slain. These aren't referring to the Israelites who were dead, this reverse to the Jews who yet live and are now in captivity, you see. Because, as the Lord says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say. So these have to do with the living. And they have to do, first of all, with the living whom we would label as the carnal, the carnal element of Israel, which was at this time of the Jews in Judah, which was the great majority at this time. And they are as dry bones, dead bones. And the Lord says concerning them, these bones, can these bones live? That is, if you were to speak to these bones, Ezekiel, would they simply rise up and and talk and walk and eat and go about their business? Lord, thou knowest very well, it's transparent, that could not B, these bones are dead as dead can be. The reference of a grave is used in the, in the verses that, that follow, of course, which is simply kind of an intensification and a parallel of our, of our passage. And so, that first of all, these bones, first of all, represent the carnal element of, of the Jews, who are, of course, spiritually dead. But more than that, Application can be made to the whole of mankind. Fallen mankind is represented by this valley with its dry, dead bones. Not only the Jews and their carnal element, but the whole of fallen mankind, which is without God, and from that point of view, really without hope in the world. We read of that in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 begins with these words, And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the children of disobedience, had our conduct in the lusts of our flesh and the desires of the flesh and the mind and so on, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. That's being dead in trespasses and sins, and that's the whole of fallen humanity apart from God's work of salvation. What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? To be dead in trespasses and sins does not simply mean one is under the sentence of death. Transgression was committed, and now you're under the sentence of death. It means more than that. It doesn't simply even mean that one cannot save himself. One's under the sentence of death, and one cannot save himself. However true that may be, the simple fact is Beloved, that even 
the Armenian will acknowledge that one is under the sentence of death and cannot save himself. What being under the what, what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins is this that one has no desire for salvation properly defined. And salvation properly defined is not simply when I die, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. So I'll be a member of a church and I'll attend that church and give some collection from time to time. And when I die, I want a clergyman to be there to say some good words over me because who wants to go to everlasting perdition? And I'll even perhaps do a few good deeds here and there as well. That's not salvation properly defined. It's not even this. I'm a great sinner and I want God to forgive my sins. That's not the full definition of salvation either. I'm a great sinner. I acknowledge that. What do you expect from me? I want my sins to be forgiven as well, you know. That's not salvation properly defined either. Properly defined salvation, beloved, is not simply that there is the lifting of the guilt and the sentence of death and condemnation, but salvation also has to, be, has to do with deliverance from the power of sin and the rule of sin so that one seeks God and loves God and will submit to his word and be of service to God and forsake one's sins because they displease God and live unto God. That's what salvation is. And there is no natural man, beloved, who wants salvation defined in those terms. So you mean... Not only do I have to say I'm a great sinner and confess sins in an outward form, but I have to forsake my sins and cast myself upon the mercy of Christ and live unto God and enjoy the Lord's Day, the whole Lord's Day? You know what sports are being played in the afternoon? I can't do that. Not interested in that kind of Christianity. You can keep that salvation. I've got idols, you know, that I've got to keep to myself as well. That's not biblical salvation, beloved. And there is no man ungoverned by the Spirit who wants salvation in those terms. Modify your definition of salvation, and I might be interested in what you have to preach and say, but not in the way of forsaking my sins and finding my joy and that which has to do with God and the spiritual things beginning on the Lord's Day. You can keep that Christianity. But that's, beloved, the evidence of the work of the Spirit, and nothing less. And that's what this people, you see, did not want. Can these bones live? And what Ezekiel understands the Lord to be saying is, can these bones, can this Israel, because it refers to the living, if I were to bring her back to the promised land, would this people live unto me? Would they serve me? Would they forsake their idols, if you will? and fight the battle of faith, and be useful in the advance of the kingdom and the victories of the kingdom? Lord, thou knowest. This would not be their interest as they are in themselves here today. So it has reference, you see, to the living, but to the absence in large measure of any interest in spirituality and the spiritual things. But what's striking about the passage, and man, I would just say, then, is, is, is dry bones. He is in bondage to sin, 
And apart from the miraculous work of God by his Holy Spirit, he will remain in the bondage of sin, whether he hears preaching and excellent preaching or doesn't hear preaching and excellent preaching. It will not touch him until the Lord God begins to do a certain kind of an inward work. That's the gospel truth, beloved. In bondage to one's own sin and desires, holy so, until the Spirit begins to work. We'll come to that. But I want to point out as well that those dry bones refer also, from a certain point of view, to those who have spiritual life in Israel. And there was a remnant in Israel. There was a spiritual remnant in Israel, represented by Ezekiel, Daniel and his three friends, and others as well. Zerubbabel, you know, would be there in, in the years to come. There's a spiritual remnant there. But even they must be viewed from a certain point of view as dry bones. And I have reference, beloved, to their ability even our ability to bring forth spiritual seed. Those who have spiritual life cannot bring forth spiritual seed. What we alone can conceive, beloved, are those who are dead in trespasses and sins, in whose heart, if the Holy Spirit did not work while they were in the womb, would come forth as carnal seed. For, our, for us to bring forth spiritual seed at some point in the development of the womb, the Holy Spirit must enter as in John the Baptist in the womb and give a new heart to that infant developing in the womb. And he does that. That's the covenant of God, you see. That's his mercy. That's not what we produced. We're dry bones with respect to bringing forth spiritual seed. Bring forth nothing with spiritual life. All we could bring forth, even as believers, is carnal seed. But exactly the word of the covenant of God that I will work in children coming from you, from us, and give them spiritual life at some point in their development. Which means they can even die in the womb, you know. Mothers of Israel may take heart. Miscarriages and a silent grief. And a mother doesn't forget that either. That even those regenerated in the womb will be never knowingly, as they brought forth, see the light of day, still brought to heaven and then given in the end fullness of bodies who shall be greeted someday. There's that too to look forward to, but that's according to the promise of God, you see, and how he works. But apart from that work, we are dry bones, and it's the spiritual, especially, who make this complaint. In verse 11, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off in our parts. Is that what this means, Ezekiel? That the Lord has disinherited us, and he is so angry with the, the nation, and out of patience with us, that he says, as you have turned your back on the words of the prophet again and again and again, I am now loose from my covenant for my promises, and I'm going to cut you off. You may be as lot, like a brand plucked out of the burning, but there is no spiritual seed coming forth from you anymore. You are done, cut off. And the spiritual say, then we're done, Ezekiel, because we can't bring forth the seed of the woman on our own. 
not in our own children, and certainly not the promised seed who will be the deliverer of us all. We are cut off. We're done. We are as dry bones in ourselves. Is that how it is, Lord? Prophesy to us, Ezekiel. Is that how it is? And the Lord brings him to this vision so that he might prophesy to answer this people, the spiritual people even, in their despair. And I might say, he has to do this for Ezekiel's sake as well. It's striking that earlier in his prophecies, and especially that vision of 8 through 11, you read this in chapter 9, that there was a vision of a slaying of the people, and I fell upon my face and cried and said, O Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? Will there be none left, Lord? Are we done? And then he actually goes on, and then he sees in chapter, should back to chapter 11, he sees some other who fall down dead, and I fell upon my face in verse 13 of chapter 11 and cried with a loud voice and said, O Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? That's the remnant, you see. Will there not even be a remnant left, Lord? Cut off? Even he is almost at the point of despair when he sees the Lord has simply driven them out of the land and the temple itself has been demolished and there is no glory that remains. Ichabod. The Lord has departed. Where are we at? Without hope, is it not so, Lord? And now comes these prophecies, you see, of of chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley of dry bones. If the Lord does not, according to his electing mercies and according to his covenant promise, bring forth life. We have no hope. We die and are cut off. And so he comes and he causes me to pass by these mounds of bones. And then he says, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And then here's the word of the Lord that he begins to speak. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live, and I shall lay sinews upon you and bring flesh upon you. In other words, I am Jehovah God, and I am going to do a great work. A great work that only I can accomplish, without which there cannot be spiritual life. But I will hold myself to my promise and to my word. But I want you to notice this, beloved, that inserted is verse 4. It's not merely this. Ezekiel asks the question, O oh Lord, uh, God asks the question, can these bones live? A rhetorical question. And Ezekiel says, Thou knowest very well, Lord, these bones can't live of themselves. And then the Lord says, goes right into verse 5 and says, Prophesy, and I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And lay, I will lay sinners upon them. Tell them that. No, no, you have verse 4 that's inserted. The Lord doesn't just simply say, and this is the work I'm going to do. He inserts the word prophesy upon these dry bones and say unto them. He underscores, beloved, the importance of preaching, of the preaching of the word, even the word again. And that doesn't mean, I think, simply, well, he has spoken once, now he's spoken. But he's saying to Ezekiel, keep on preaching. You see, 
Ezekiel is himself at the point of despair when it comes to the preaching. Lord, I've been preaching for a decade, and what has it produced? Not much. Jeremiah preached for 50 years, Lord, and what did it produce? Destruction of Jerusalem came at the end of his preaching. There was no great repentance. There was no turning, turning, turning by a nation, just continuing on in sin. And now we're gone. Why preach? It's a waste of breath. They don't listen anyway. Is that how it is? How it was with Israel. Because said, why? Why should I do so, Lord? No one listens anyway. Might as well give up. Ezekiel prophesy upon these bones. Hear the word of the Lord. And I will decide when I'm going to honor that word. You go about your business as you are called, preacher man, son of man. And I will go about my business when I determine to go about my business. You be faithful in your calling. And I will use it powerfully when I determine to use it. What do you read in the New Testament, beloved? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish foolishness. That's one, of course, in whom the Spirit has not worked. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. That is, those in whom the Spirit has worked. It is the power of God. It has pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I will honor the word. That's the insertion, you see. The Spirit does it. But he does not do it apart from the preaching of the word. And in the sphere of the preaching, even when little children are gathered in the womb, it's in the churches and it's in the line of the covenant where the preaching is being declared. So, Ezekiel, pick up your preaching mantle again and hold forth with the word, and I will accomplish what is in my heart when I determine to accomplish it. I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. So he has to preach, you see, the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of grace. That's certainly here right in the text itself. And I turn you to the Lord God and his promises and lean upon those promises and take him at his word. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. But understand that in this preaching to which Ezekiel was called, it was not simply to talk about the sovereignty of God. It also had to do with the call to repentance. Turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. That's Ezekiel 33, you know. It's a well-known text, almost as well-known as God so loved the world. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? That's what he was called to preach, you see. He said, well, I've been preaching then. They haven't turned. The Lord says, now behold my work. And I'm going to raise the people up to do what? To give them ears to hear what the word is said and the eyes to see the wisdom of that word. Because up to this point, from a certain point of view for a large measure, it's as you read in chapter 33, verse 30 and 31, Thou son of man, the children of thy people are talking about you by the wall, because he's been preaching publicly, saying, Come, hear what word comes from, from the Lord. They come unto thee as the people cometh. This is verse 31 of 33. 
They sit before thee as my people. They hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouths they show much love. Oh, what a wonderful sermon. Enjoyed that thoroughly. But their heart goeth after their covetousness. We'll hear you again on this matter sometime, Reverend. We have other things to tend to now, and they went their own way. They will not do them. They heard them, but they weren't going to forsake their idolatrous ways and their immoralities and repent in turn. They were cut off. They were as dead men, impervious to the word. And the Lord God says, I'm going to do a work. I'm going to wake them up. I'm going to raise them from the dead, you see, by this preaching of the word, in connection with the preaching of the word. Can the preaching do it itself? No, beloved, the preaching cannot do it itself. That's why you read in verse 8, but there was no breath in them. So he preaches, and the bones begin to come together. And you know the spiritual, of course, and it's kind of a delightful spiritual the foot bone's connected to the leg bone, and the leg bone's connected to the thigh bone, and the thigh bone to the pelvis bone, the backbone, and the backbone's connected to the neck bone, and finally you speaks of the head bone, and then it runs but down the line again. But what's interesting about that spiritual is there's a refrain that is repeated again and again and again. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Thus saith the word of the Lord. That spiritual puts the emphasis where it has to be emphasized. It has to do with the, with the word of the Lord. But then in connection with that, beloved, you have to have the working of the Holy Spirit as well. There can be effects under the preaching of the word that are emotional. That appear as though the whole body has come together and one lives. The parable of the seed. And there was that seed that fell into shallow soil, if you recall, and it sprang up quickly with enthusiasm. And then it found out under the heat of the day, what was required of it, to bear Christ's reproach and so on. It wasn't interested in bearing the reproach of Christ and walking in the ways of, it bore no fruit. It withered away under the test and trial of what must measure up to true faith and godliness, an outward response, but not deeply rooted in the soil of Christ, you see. It's all the preaching in itself can work. So now, Prophesy to the wind, prophesy, son of man, say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God. And he prophesies, and he speaks to the wind, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet in exceeding great harmony. So you have the wonder here of the bones coming together, covered with flesh, and then the prophet speaks really concerning the power of the Holy Spirit himself, almost as the voice of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, represented by the wind, enters the lungs, and they breathe, and they see, and they hear, and they stand up, and now they're ready, what? To walk. Walk what? In the ways of the Lord. Has to do, beloved, with repentance, true conversion. Interesting, you know, that we just read that passage, says they, do, they would not do them, they would not listen. In, verse, in chapter 36, verse 31, we read, Then ye shall remember your evil ways. This is 36. 31, and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. That's what's going to happen. How can that happen, Lord? I've been preaching. They haven't done that. Wait and see, Ezekiel. I'm going to work a great work. 
I'm going to give them spiritual life, ears that hear and eyes that see, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for their iniquities and their unrighteousness. Loathing, that's not simply saying I'm a great sinner. You're a great sinner, well, I'm even a greater sinner than you are. I can all confess my sins better than you. It doesn't matter, beloved, that we say we're great sinners. Do we loathe ourselves in the way that we will depart from those ways? That's what repentance is. Loathing means you find something repugnant that you once found delightful and say it's delightful no longer. I find it now repugnant. I will not put this on my table. It's like like meat that's taken off the road. Ask those who have been newly converted. They will tell you what I once found appealing, I now loathe. And I loathe myself for having delighted in that stuff. God be merciful to me, the sinner, and turn me, turn me, turn me, that I may walk in thy ways. That's repentance. And the Lord says, I will work by my spirit that there shall be such a people. And then you read what we, what we read in verse 23 of the chapter, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor any of their transgressions. They will leave those ways and be of service to the Lord God. Beloved, do we recognize those people? Do we recognize those people in ourselves? If not, God be merciful to us, God be merciful to me, and turn me that I may be turned, to show indeed I have this spirit of life within me, to the approval of thy name and the evidence of thy spirit. That's what this resurrection from the dead is all about, beloved. Now there's a people you see who hear that word, come hear what he has to say, and they don't simply go their way. They hear thy words, and they turn, and they live according to those words. That's the power, you see, of the work of grace and the Holy Spirit, and what God says I will accomplish in my own. And they shall become a mighty army. Notice, beloved, not simply a multitude of people, a mighty army. It's interesting, an army, of course, is under the leadership of a general. So it's an organization, if you will, but it's what goes forth to accomplish spiritual things in the, in the interest of the kingdom, you see, of the Messiah. There's reference here to David, the second David, is there not? This is prophecy, you see, of the New Testament church from a very real point of view when the second David comes and he pours out his Holy Spirit and begins to work this work. It's interesting, on the first day of Pentecost, Peter preached, and the question, what shall we do? The response of the apostle was, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And we read 3,000 were converted. And the next day or two, 5,000 with their families as well, the working of the Spirit. And then the church is gathered, and it becomes a mighty army. When does this take place? Well, it's true that Judah was brought back from captivity, but they did not become a spiritual force to be reckoned with, beloved. They survived for five, five centuries. They survived, and they're found in the Zacharias and Elizabeth and so on, and the aged Simeon and Anna, representing the church of that time, old and weak and feeble, but existing. They were not a spiritual force to be reckoned with. And then comes Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. 
and the church is gathered and it becomes a military force. The apostles go forth, not simply to defend the truth, beloved, but to bring the truth to bear against the walls of Satan himself. And according to the scriptures, you know, say what you will, God, Christ accomplishes a great military victory through the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament age. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to obedience of Christ. Notice that phrase. The weapons of our warfare. That's the word, the spirit of the word. Bringing into captivity every thought to obedience of Christ. That's godliness, you understand. Faith, but godliness. And having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The victories of Christ in the New Testament age and the church as a mighty army. It doesn't appear that way to the physical eye, does it? There's still what you call a remnant. It's a Gideon's band, beloved. But a Gideon's band or not, if you will, Christ uses his church in the New Testament age to have victories, victory after victory. He saves soul after soul from the bondage and the captivity and rule of Satan. And he himself suffers not one defeat when it comes to those chosen to everlasting life. Not one defeat. Every last soul who has been transformed by the Spirit in accordance with the preaching of the word, is saved in the end. In the end is saved, may stumble and fall, but is picked up, preserved, and saved. Christ has the victory. Psalter number 200, Christ shall have dominion over land and sea, in the nations as well. And beloved, we have to keep that in mind, lest we ourselves maybe view it with despair. We're a few. What's left of Christianity in this day and age? We're just a few, and I don't just mean PRs. I mean God's people scattered over the length and breadth of the earth, a remnant in the, in the connection with, in comparison with all the billions. How many? Numbering in the hundred, maybe, maybe a million, who knows how many, but not in the billions, a minority. And wickedness increases, and governments outlaw this righteousness and that righteousness and that righteousness until what? until they finally close down our worship services as well. And then what? Christ will still have dominion, beloved. He will save his own to the uttermost. And we simply go forth preaching the gospel. And God says, you keep preaching, you keep bringing the word, and I will do what I have determined to do with my own as well and honor my promises. And so, beloved, it's simply this, isn't it? If God be for us, who can be against us? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And how does the Psalter number put it? Go forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil and stand for the right. And God, beloved, will use us to the advancement of his kingdom, beginning in our own lives. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the work of the Spirit and thy promises, thy faithfulness, Lord. It is our only hope, but our hope is our confidence, because it's based upon the great work of that second David, 
who is our Lord and the captain of the host. Let he go forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil and stand for the right. In Jesus' name, amen.